the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, typefaces turn out to be alien hatchlings designed to enter through the eyes and eat your brains. So, when you see them start wriggling, read faster. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have a great interview this time with legendary Bain book cover designer and book interior designer Carol Russo. You know, a great, great many Bain books, if you you look at the copyright page of the book jacket, you'll see it says right there, book designed by Carol Russo Designs. And Carol has been doing this since Jim Bain was at Ace Books back in the 70s. If you've read a couple of Bain books, you know there is a characteristic look to our books. And that's something that doesn't happen by accident. In so many ways, Carol Russo is the creator and maintainer of the Bain look and the Bain brand. Carol talks with us about how she works with the art and the type and tries to get the true feeling of an author's work onto the cover to entice you in and also to really communicate the feel of the book so you, the reader, won't be disappointed. It's a great conversation with a legend of publishing and especially here at Bain, a real legend. And at Bain, she's still hard at work putting together with artists and team members the covers you love. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now, here's the news. The March Mass Market paperbacks are springing forth like daffodils of the mind at booksellers far and near. These include Carpe Diem by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. On the run from interplanetary assassins, covert operative Val Cano's Philium and former mercenary sergeant Mary Robertson have wound up stranded on a distant planet with no rescue in sight. Until they figure out a way back to Liad, these two lost souls must find a way to trust each other and let their love heal the dark wounds of their past. Also at Booksellers this month is House of Assassins by Larry Correa. First daughter of Vane Thera has been kidnapped by a shape-shifting wizard intent on stealing her powers. Now Ashok Vidal rides to her rescue, but it seems Ashok may be caught in a game played by the gods for the fate of the world itself. And if the gods do exist, Ashok has warned them, stay out of my way. And finally now in mass market paperback is Man Kazin Wars 15, created by Larry Niven. The predatory cat-like warrior race known as the Kazen never had a hard time dealing with all those they encountered, conquering alien worlds with little effort. Then they came face to face with those leaf-eaters known as humans. New stories of the war between humanity and the cat-like Kazen from Brad R. Torgerson, Brendan Dubois, Martin L. Shoemaker, and more. Man Kazen Wars 15, created by Larry Niven. Carpe Diem by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. 
and House of Assassins by Larry Correa are now available in mass market editions at booksellers everywhere. And remember that when a book goes into mass market, that means the ebook price comes down. So get them, read them, and enjoy the blooming things out there. I want to welcome Carol Russo to the podcast. Carol Russo, hey, how's it going, Carol? Oh, everything's fine. How are you? I'm fine. Carol Russo is, uh, I guess, president of Carol Russo Designs. I don't know what your position is. Actually, I am. You know, I'm the only one working right now, but I am president. And, I mean, Carol, you're pretty much, I would say, and Tony Weisskopf, my boss, would agree, agree with me, that, I mean, a lot of the look and feel of Bain um, is due to you. You are one of our two book designers and by far have done more Bain books than anyone ever. <laughs> and um, and you uh, also are a typesetter, that, that, and you do a lot of our uh, our typesetting as well, just all kinds of things. In fact, um, probably uh, you could be called the hidden heart of Bain. I, uh, that's true. It's true. Let's talk about the past and the present and the future. And <laughs> well, past, I, I mean, I met Jim Bain when I was, my very first job was with Ace Books, and he was an editor at Ace Books for the science fiction division. And, and I was told he was very tough to get along with, but I love science fiction, so I wanted to do his books. And we managed, we got along just great. And I ended up doing, he would ask me to do all the covers for all his books when he was editor there. And at that time, um, Tom Doherty was the publisher of, of, Ace, of Ace Books. And I was there for a couple of years. And then I left to try to freelance. And Tom Doherty and Jim Bean both left at the same time to start their own division, which was Tor and Bain Books. They they worked together, and they called me up, and they wanted me to do their covers. And at that time, I was doing covers for Tor and Bain. And Jim's line was called Jim Bain Presents. And it was this tiny, tiny office. In fact, nobody, I mean, you couldn't even move in the office when they first started out. And I would go up there as a freelancer, and Jim would tell me what he was looking for because he always liked to control his covers. He loved to, like, sketch and show me what he wanted. And uh, from there, in fact, a funny story there was, I remember when he, we were doing, we did a banner for his Jim Bain Presents, and Tom Doherty, it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and Tom Doherty said, you've got to tell him that the banner's got to be smaller. You know, it has to be a little bit smaller. I said, well, why don't you tell him? He says, well, he won't yell at you. But we, he was, I mean, he was really pretty, you know, like, and so then we ended up, Jim then ended up separating. They went, he went to a small office on Fifth, and Tom Doherty went to another office off, I, I can't even remember where they were, and I worked for both. But Jim was, Jim was always my favorite, you know, because it was, he had, uh, he always really wanted to, he would give me sketches. He would try to, like, get involved. I had to be there for each book. We talked about every book, every book cover in person. 
Yeah. So you came in and you talked about it, and he would, uh, he would. You know, they were just starting, and so we had to actually get the art first, get a photograph of the art, and then we would have to put type over it, and Jim would have to approve the design first, and then we actually did an acetate of color. You know, and it was a whole different procedure. Computers were just coming in. Did you lay, I mean, did you use like press type and things like that? Well, I hand lettered. I was a hand letterer. So I used to actually letter the type by hand. And most of them were hand lettered. And there was press type, and we would design from that. But it was was very strange the way it was done that the, the cover was done with uh, even the mechanical. We did what they call mechanicals, where you put the art down in black and white, and you would put your type on the mechanical, and the printer would put everything together. You, there was no such thing as a PDF, where you know you now you put everything, including special effects. Yeah, so you had like different layers that you looked at it. And, and to the point where you had to mark each layer for the printer, like if it was foil, you had to mark it foil. If it was a color, you had to tell them what color you wanted. A lot of it was guesswork. So you didn't actually, you didn't see the cover until they printed it. So you had to sort of form it in your mind. Exactly. And, you know, like if, if um, it you you gave them that mechanical and then, that's why the first pr- proof was so important. You know, a lot of times people went on press to approve because if it looked terrible. I mean, you took guesses at colors. You know, you couldn't really see it. And if there was a correction, remember now, type was set outside. You would have your type set by a typesetter. And then you would put it down on your mechanical. And then we started doing, we started to marry the, you know, like then we got into computers and we did the typesetting. But we still, when we did the typesetting, we still used mechanicals because we weren't that, we weren't, you know, set up to to do like a PDF high res. It was done a whole different way. Yeah. Well, why did you, did you do typesetting all along as well as as part of your uh business or well i did i i also we we my company was also when i was a company you know in the city we also did children's books we did uh i worked for my, but the main people i worked for covers were and i did covers for other companies but my, my favorites were tor and bane and jim especially but um like i said it was done now it's so easy because you could see everything you're doing. And Jim wanted, I mean, he really, he would ask me to come in with the comps, and then he'd start changing them, and then he'd decide, well, you know, I think we should have panels around all type. You know, what, what, like he'd decide panels work the best, so you could see the title. When we would do, every cover had panels. And then we went through, every cover, cover had foil in it, every cover had, he was, he really, when he lived in Riverdale and when he was in New York, I saw him a lot. You know, I didn't see him once he moved down to um, Carolina. But then again, by that time, we had computers. So he could see yeah. everything. Yeah. Well, what, um, so, I mean, we're talking 
the very beginnings of this were like, what, 1983? Yeah, we're talking about the very, very beginning because computers were here, but they weren't being used as much by um, publishing. They were used a lot in advertising. And then it just, you know, the transformation came fast. You know, we started going into computers, and then it was just one, two, three, one thing after another. And But it was still in the beginning, even up until a while ago, like maybe maybe seven or eight years ago, nine years ago, I would still have to send a printer a disc with a printed out, you know, file. It was, you know, yeah. like they would still put it together. It was still a printed out file. I mean, we've now, and that isn't all, I mean, it's maybe at least, it's got to be at least like seven or eight years ago that we still had to print out. I have a huge printer, you know, in my office because we had to print out large sheets, like when they were hardcovers, the whole thing, and send it to the printer for position. Yeah, well, publishing is, you know, <laughs> the last to change. Well, it um, was. I mean, advertising had already switched over. A lot of advertising had switched over to um, uh, the, the, the computer. But I know a lot of people after the computer came on, all the people that used to do just mechanicals, they were gone. You know, like, because now a lot of the printers, the separators, they're not there anymore. They're not in, uh, I guess they don't even work at the printing companies anymore. I used to know a bunch of uh, uh, the guys that, that put the papers together at newspapers back in the old days when I worked at newspapers sometimes. And, uh, you know, they used the brayers and everything. Those guys are gone. Yeah, those days are gone. But, they, you know, they they went fast, and people, some people just never caught on. You know, people disappeared out of the, um, you know, out of publishing. Yeah. Well, how did you adapt? What, I mean, you're more of an artist in a way, I guess. So. Yeah, I well, my my uh, major in in visual arts was illustration, <laughs> so somehow I just managed to go over to design, and I liked it, you know. But, um, I was always going to go back to illustration, but I never did. Yeah, where did you go to school? A school of visual arts in the city. Ah, New York person, huh? Did you grow up in New York? Yeah, always was in New York. In fact, when um, I first decided to go freelance, speaking of getting back to Jim, you know, Bain Books, they wouldn't even lease space to me. So Jim Bain actually leased the space for me because I guess I didn't have a background or enough money or whatever I needed. But he leased a space right near their office on 5th when it was on 5th. So how did you, how did the, I mean, people say, and they're right, um, there's a, there's kind of a Bane look to covers. We are the most branded sort of um, publisher that I've ever seen. Because of Jim Bean. He, he had, he had a look and I guess I just, you know, like I, I got into it because I was always working with him. But he wanted books to look a certain, and, and he had a look he wanted more so than even tour. Because every every once in a while, you know, if I did a tour book, they would say, "Oh, it looks too much like a Bain book," you know. So he had a look, and I guess I 
I just carry on the way he really liked designing books. What would you call, how would you characterize that look? Do you have a... Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure how, how to say it, but it was, it's basically, I mean, I don't know, I get a feel, like if, if I'm working on a cover and it's a hard sci-fi or if it's a fantasy, I just, especially from the cover now, because, you know, you, you look at the art and you get a feel for what the art gives me an idea of what the story is going to be about. And then, you know, the I, I pull out designs and fonts that feel right for that book. And then a lot of times I, I still hand letter a lot of stuff. I do it on the computer now, but a lot of fonts don't all exist the way they, they are on the book. What does it mean? What does hand lettering mean exactly? Years ago, it meant you actually did a sketch of your hand of what you wanted to do, and you used acetate and you used a pen and ink, and you would use a T square and triangle and and actually create the type on the uh, acetate, and then that would you would then get it shot and put it on the mechanical. So you it was it doesn't exist in any type font. You may base it on a type font, but it doesn't really exist in a type font. Um, a lot of times, like, I'll like a font for a particular cover, but I hate the W, so I just recreate it so that it looks right. You know, there's a different feeling to it, but it looks right. And you still do that, but you, do, you just do it with a computer. I do that on the computer now because I learned how to actually use my I, – I go do a lot in Illustrator. So that, like, I actually, like, I sometimes I'll even scan in a tissue and do an overlay and draw it, you know, in Illustrator. Or I start with a font, a basic font, and then change it so that it works the way I want it to work or there's a letter that I want it to work a certain way and it doesn't in the font that I'm using. What was um, what was your favorite... Uh... Tell us a tell us a story from the eighties, maybe the having to do with Bain, um, if you have anything that, that like what what was your favorite cover or something like that? I'm trying I'm trying to think if any one particular cover you know like um, all I can remember you know like out of all the covers we did is this the sizing of like what Jim wanted to do things with but I do remember we would go, he would go through these phases where I would design something like when we designed his new logo he kept wanting it bigger and bigger and bigger and that was before we designed the logo they're using now this was a different logo it looked almost like a I don't know if you've ever some of the really old books have it it oh, looks more that, like yeah. a uh, uh, Bane books is on top in the bottom, it's more like a um, cube, a Bain, Bain logo. And then we went to the new Bain logo. Um, but the old books had this cube look, and it was huge on those books. I look back at some of them, if I have any of them in my files from, like, the 90s, you know, like whatever I have left on computers, and they were huge. We used them, like, really big. But I'm sure that was uh, because of Jim. Yeah, 
well they looked kind of monolithic like like uh like like stone carving things floating in space floating in space <laughs> that's that's good but uh, i you know i really in, enjoyed i'm they moved to, from Riverdale to North Carolina, but up until then, I used to see Jim and um, and Hank and the, that whole gang all the time. They were, Hank was there. Yeah, Hank Davis. Yeah, Hank Davis. Yeah, he's yeah. he's been well, he's been around a long time. <laughs> yeah. Well, he still comes in through twice a week. He's Does he really? He's, uh, yeah, yeah. He's editing his um, his anthologies. Um, he's cut back quite a bit. <laughs> what was? Um, tell us more about coming in on Riverside, um, Riverdale. Well, Riverdale was actually isn't that far from where I I used to live. I now I live in an area called White Plains, but back then I lived in an area called Mount Vernon. It's Lower Westchester, right near Riverdale. So I would have to like leave my my office in the city because I had a, I would go to his office at least once a month, if not more often, you know, like to talk about the covers and, you know, like I would bring sketches one time and we would finalize them because he wanted to see, to see the final mechanicals there again. Some of them were still in mechanical form. So, you know, he would want to see them. You know, it's hard for me to think of it now because if something was wrong, we would have had to change the whole mechanical. You know, like now when we see a typo, we can just go back and do it. There you had to go back and redo the whole thing from from scratch. But I would go down to the Riverdale. It was a house. It was really a very nice house. And it was like the bottom floor was all published, you know, like he had all his publishing stuff. And he lived above in the house, you know, like above. And I would be there at least two to two to three times a month. I would have to leave the city, go get my car, go to Riverdale, and uh, but it was nice. It was very pretty. Yeah, well, that's how he he started down here as well. Oh, did he? It's funny because, like I said, by that time, you know, I talked to him. I would send him sketches. I would talk to him, but it was such a different way of dealing with things that, you know, you really didn't have to be here. With there, he always wanted to, like, you know, like, see what color you were putting in there and, you know. Yeah, I guess you had to flip through those, uh, those, those make, the thing you're making up for the covers. Yeah, sometimes we would try to put them on a color layer to get an idea, but it still is guesswork. Is there anything that didn't come out well at all that you remember? I'm sure there was something. So, you know, I'm trying to think of something. I'm trying to think if we ever had a real failure. I know he liked to try things, you know, especially with special effects, if he could. And back when we first started, special effects, there weren't that many of them. I mean, maybe foil, but there wasn't a lot of special effects. And he found this one special effect, we found it by accident, where if you underprint a it was a um it wasn't a foil color but it was like um an ink like a silver ink and then you overprinted a light color it would give it like a glow i i can't tell you how many times we used that because he found it by accident we did something by mistake 
But I'm, I don't think we ever had any really awful covers or, you know, any... I can't remember any, any at the moment, anyway. Well, that's probably why he kept you on, because you kept giving him good stuff. <laughs> was was there other book designers back then? There was never anything he said, oh, my God, I hate this. But then again, he always had to approve it. So if he hated it, he would have seen it way ahead of time. That's right. Were you the only cover designer back then, or were there others? Back then, I was, yeah, for a long time. You know, like when um, Bain was just, you know, like st- when J- when Bain was just starting, even as an individual Bain book and not part of Tour Bain, I was the only person that worked with him. And then in Riverdale, I think, I don't know, there was one other person that he used to use once in a while. And, but not really. We, I, I did most of his covers. I think pretty yeah. much all of them. Yeah. I mean, I, it's just like Carol Russo is the is the Bane look as far as I, I I'm concerned. So, what about Weber? Have you done all? You've done all the Webers, haven't you? I think. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, well, actually, any of the books that were done in in the past, I did them all. You know, there again, the Webers, the. Um, a lot of these now, the ones that are leather bound, and the old ones, because I, I still have the files on them. When I have to uh, uh, look up, you know, we do the inserts of the original cover for the Webers. Yeah, I, I those yeah. I still have on computer. By that time, there was like the ones that are twenty five years or so. Those are those are maybe not put together for final because we didn't do it that way. And I can, but I have everything I need to put them together now. Um, but yeah, I was doing those and we, we went from, you know, all the series. Cause at one time, like I said, Bain wanted panels around everything. And I think the Webbers had a lot of panels, but I, I, I so, did all of the Webbers. Yeah. Do you remember the infamous Michael Jackson, Honor Harrington cover that we've strived to forget here? <laughs> the Honor Harrington, the old ones had that like little... Logo look, the Honor Harrington. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that was, I like I said, those I have, and, you know, like when we do put together the leather editions, the signed leather editions, I go back into files, and that I can reproduce because yeah. we have, I have everything I need. And sometimes I need to get a picture. Yeah, I mean, and you've worked with, I mean, Bain is also famous uh, for using, for sticking with artists over the years, and a lot of artists that are, you know, that are incredibly uh, popular and, and you couldn't hire if you wanted to now, um, still work with us because they got their start with us. I know, I know a lot of those artists, especially the ones that we, you know, in the beginning, like, um, you know, the ones that we started with. David Mattingly, I, I know him pretty well. Um, these these guys really can go anywhere. But it, it, I, well, Bain is Bain is Bain. Bain is I, 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 if you love science fiction, you're going to love Jim Bain. I mean, you love his books. It was it was it was science fiction yeah. at its best. It really well, was. So Mattingly, for instance, does all the Honor Harrington covers after a certain point. Um, it was like, 
you know, we need to have David do these. Um, are there artists that you that you particularly like working with, or that you feel that are easy to design the cover around their 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 piece? Well, you know, now it's not it. If if I get a, if you get nice pieces of art, you can do whatever you you know. You can add space. You can. At one time, it was a lot harder. If you know, like years ago, an artist would design a cover because they want and they wanted to resell their painting, so they wouldn't give you a lot of type type space. This was always a, a tug of war. You know, like you need space for the title, and you know if you ever went to these conventions years ago they would have a lot of artists would sell their covers along their paintings and people would buy them but now if say an artist sends something that doesn't have enough room well we can add it we can do whatever we want with it so it doesn't become much of a problem anymore as long as the artist is good and decent for the book um, we can we can play with it. Could, you could even change it now. You can yeah. you know silhouette it. You can you know like if it, it's not working. You can put it on you know on a, another background. You there's so much you can do with it to make it work. Like with the uh, yeah, I mean it, um, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say like with say the uh, Council of Fire. I mean we. We, you know, you, you, we had a background that we used, and you know, like a parchment. So you, you kind of you can do that with a cover if it's not working another way. I mean, not that that wouldn't have worked, but we were following a format. But yeah, we kind of put a we put it in a frame in in a way to say this is a flintlock fantasy kind of kind of look, right? Right, and you know, where years ago we didn't have those options. What whatever we got was what we had to use. It was a little. I think it was a little harder to design back then because you didn't have any kind of freedom to change things. It was it was a little bit unless you paneled it, and that we did do sometimes. Jim also liked panels, you know, like around the art. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we we did a lot of that. More freedom. Well, I remember working with you particularly. We were on the uh, on this recently on a couple of years ago on on the Tim Powers uh, novel. Um, it wasn't the last one, but the one before, um, whose name is escaping me at the moment. Although it's one of my favorite books, um, Alternate Routes, yeah, um, or Roots, as you Yankees might say. So. And and we were trying to make it. We had a cover that was action adventure, but but we were trying to make it more suggestive of uh, the fact that it's a supernatural, um, you know, kind of uh, adventure story set in a modern day where um, lots of uh, ghosts are around Los Angeles and things like that. Um, and you really transformed that cover. Could you? I don't know if you remember much about what you did, but uh, oh, well, yeah, I do. I, I mean, what what I did was when I recreated the title, we made it look sort of like a uh, a sign, you know, like um. But I used a lot of like um, transparencies in that, like I tra- made things transparent because we were ta- talking ghostly, and it, you know, it, it's the feel that 
I guess that's the whole thing. You feel how a jacket's supposed to look. And that's what I try to do. I, I try to get it to feel the right way. And that was kind of a ghostly novel. And so a lot of the stuff you can work there again, you can work in transparency. So that's something we couldn't do years ago and make it look, you know, give it some special effects and make it look like it's ghostly. Yeah. Bring some yeah, things up, take things back. Right. It, yeah. Like, in you know, cause you could even do that with the people, you know, you could take part of a piece of the art, and make it transparent over the type if we had to. You know, that 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 is a lot of input. It comes sometimes when you know what the book is about, too. Like, you know, like you could see what his book was about, you know, just reading even just quickly some of it. Um, and, and, you know, you just want to make the book feel like the author's, what the author would want it to look like. And, you know, what is, what, what, what is, um, yeah, yeah. And I mean, and so that simple formula is what we do. And so many publishers seem to, to, to sometimes not. Um, well, I think the other thing is, as you said it, where like a lot of artists and people will work with Jim. I think people love working with Bain. I don't, I, I can't even, I mean, I know why I do, because I've been here forever and, you know, just built up, you know, a love of it. But there are people like you, even the people that are working there now, I mean, when you talk to them, they all seem to really care about what they're doing. I don't think that's like that in every publishing company. I mean, I know it's not. I think, I think yes, I think you're right. Walk us through how you make a book now a book cover and and the typesetting portion too maybe yeah well what what would what, ha- what happens is you know um at at the point which was starting to put together comps um now what's a comp yeah the the comp what happens is you get the art you get um now if it's part of a series you have a look from the past like what it should look like if it's a new series um, then you want to find out what type of book it is. A lot of times, if the art art will show you that, if it's like a hard sci-fi or if it's a fantasy, um, and you start, I start getting together typefaces I like that work with what I'm looking at, and then I send Tony um, Weisskopf probably about ten comps each for each cover that I'm working on, rough. And then she will respond to me and, you know, like she'll say, well, I like A and B to get, you know, like something from A, something from B. Um, and then we combine them or, you know, change them slightly. But I think it is more the feel. Like, I, I don't know, like when I look at a piece of art, I get a feel, a feeling. And if the artist captured the book, then I'm probably going to get the right type of feel for the type. And it, uh, that's, that's pretty much how I work. I look and I feel what, it, what it's supposed to feel like. Do you have, like, do you ever dream in type faces? Um, do you have, I 
imagine you just have a lot of types. Times like when I'm when I'm trying to think of what to do with something. Like you know, when I get a, a piece of art and I have no idea of what to do about it. You know, like you, you'll see something in front of you, and it may be something that doesn't hit me right away of what I want to do. And then sometimes what I do is I I'll go through different. I'll just look through fonts. You know, on my type. You know, like my suitcase, and I look and I look, and then I see something that hey, this works with this art. It has, you know, a flow similar to that. It has, you know, whatever. And then I, I look at the font with the title. Like, in other words, I'll, I'll set it with the title. And if I like it, but I, it's just not right, then I change it. But I use that font as a basic, you know, like bottom, you know, master. And then I may change the mm-hmm. cap. I may change the – I may do something else with it. But I look for a feel first, and then I work with that to work with the art and the author. What about a book's interior? What about the design of an interior of the book? Well, that, you know, that is a lot. That's where the author comes in, because what happens is a lot of times an author, you, you know, like based on the manuscript, you're going to see like either subtitles or in you know like things that an author may want and you have to set it up so that it reads it flows right but what he wants is getting done like you know certain excerpts or if there's something um I try to keep the the chapter headings or whatever in line with what I've done for the cover or whoever did the cover you know if it's one of joys or something I try to keep that look in the chapter openings and, you know, in some of the master things. But, I, you know, you try to make, well, you want to make the author happy, so try to follow what he's looking for. Yeah, I was going to say, because sometimes it's not a straight, it's not really that obvious to me, but, you know, like I, I can get usually an idea from the um, manuscript, the you know, the Word document, what the author is looking for. And most authors are really nice to work if you ask them a question or you're not sure of something. They really are, you know, very easy to work with. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, for the most part, if you, if they get a first pass, say an, an author gets a first pass, they have time to correct, correct things. You know, if they see something, they say, oh, no, I didn't want this. But if their story is just straightforward, and, you know, it's like chapter to chapter, but sometimes they have, like, um, you know, dates and timelines, and you have to make sure that those dates and timelines are, are uniform and are consistent so that people don't get crazy when they're reading, you know, different timelines. Well, you, you know, you also do typesetting um, and just making the book. Um, how has that changed? I mean, that's really changed. Well, that has really, really changed, believe it or not. When I first did a book typesetting, that wasn't really, I was more of a cover designer, but I I did do, we actually had manuscripts and that we had a, we had to actually count the number of characters across and like put a line down it and then count the number of pages you had and multiply it. It was a whole, you know, like, and design the, the pages. You would send the typesetter a design, you know, like, and they were done on, like, by printers. They, um, you know, like, in other words, you would go across and say there were 
hundred characters for the first line. Then you would have to count how many how many lines in a page, and how many pages you had to get, and then times it all. And then you had to account for like indents and stuff like that. It was a much different process, but it wasn't. It was left to chance because you really didn't have any much control over it once it went out. Whereas here you have a lot of control. What? Yeah. There was math involved. Oh, a lot of math involved because you know the and then if say the author changed a you know because then you would get not a printed you know it was printed but sometimes it was typed. I mean they they actually authors years ago used typewriters and if they used a different typewriter you'd have to stop at that page and then recount it for a different type you know if they used something else. In, in chapter 13. But yeah, that was all math and guesswork. There was a real problem if you wanted to make changes after the proofs came. And you, I mean, there was a, a limit to what you could do um, as, as, say, an author reviewing your changes or something like that. Yeah, see, now here, if we, we have a, a, a correction in a page, I just have to make that correction and, and re, you know, like, I, I just, um, resubmit a new page. I just have to like post a new page on the on the FTP site, and then they slip it in. But back then, and I I don't I guess it must have been a longer process. You know I I you know you don't really think about it, but the process had to be longer because an editor would have to read the whole book again. When it was in in um, galleys, they would call I think they would call galleys, and 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 you would have to like read these galleys. Yeah. And make corrections, yeah. and they they weren't in book form; they were in galley form. Like you know, they were long, and then you yeah, and they had those, they had the blues, and uh, they had different versions of galleys. Yeah. Right. What What are the, the blues? Were after that was when you were checking for running heads and things like that. Yeah, the blues were like actually the way the book was going to be printed. I think the galleys was just you know like almost like running the the text so you could see how it was, you know, make any, I guess, editorial corrections and things like that. The, the blues, yeah. I mean, once you approve the blue, that would be like our going online, like Elizabeth, Libby going online and saying, you know, and approving the interior, you know, going, that, those are your blues now. Like go print, yeah. I mean, the whole, you know, it's really funny because I, I never, I, I was an illustration major. I never took a course on a computer, anything. This is a, it was just a transition from, you know. But how do you, I mean, but you weathered it, and a lot of people didn't. Well, you, how do you account for that, Carol? I, I just, you know, I was able to pick up, like, pick up how to do it on the computer, like, Hand lettering. I hand. I actually hand letter an illustrator. I just somehow. I don't know. I guess just over time, it was a necessity. You had to go onto the computer, and I used to like the look of hand lettering. I, you know, but it was you didn't get. You couldn't get certain things if you just scanned it in. Like if you hand lettered it and scanned it in, you couldn't change it. So I learned how to do it in Illustrator. A lot of the stuff I do is in Illustrator. And then I bring it into Photoshop, and then I do the special effects over there. But 
it was a process, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I don't even know how. You well, know, it, 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 I guess it was so slow or maybe so fast that I don't even remember how I learned, but I did. What about the Tony Weisskopf period of uh, of Bain? How's that been? Um, did she she didn't take over the she did she was not the art designer that she is. I mean she's she's the, uh, the what do we call it the art editor here now. I mean she did she do that before or did she sort of start doing that after Jim's death? That Jim did. Uh, Jim always was involved with the art until you know afterwards, and then then Tony took over. Um, it was always Jim, um, as far as, you know, the art. Now, I don't know what happened. I know that that was true when we were in Riverdale. Now, when he moved down to North Carolina, I don't know if how much involved, how involved she was with the art. I got my, you know, my instructions from Jim at that point. And then after, uh, after he passed in, in 2006, I think it was. Stepped in and took over, you know, she was, that was like, yeah, she had to. I mean, she, she knew everything. I mean, she was there in Riverdale. I mean, she, sometimes she would sit in with us, but she was, she was there. So she knew everything that was going on. She knew, she knew everything. So. So what's it like today? Um, we have these production meetings. Um, I talk to you almost every day <laughs> or interact one way or another with email. Or Right. It makes it so much, you know, it's it's funny. It's It makes it easier um, for me to work because this way, if I have questions, I can get a hold of someone before it was only by phone. And, you know, and also now, you know, in the meetings, I... I always look at my list of um, my Libby list over here, and I know exactly where everything is going. And now that we have this new smart sheet, that's great. I mean, you can go in and out and check to see if something's in there, you know, like that I need without. Yeah, our production managers brought in a, a workflow program that's really been, been helping us a lot to get everything going. It's cool. Well, you know, at one time, say I was doing a um, an arc for a cover, I would have to, like, go crazy looking for the covers, getting a hold of Jen. Now all I have to do is go into Smartsheet and look for the cover, and I, I, I can download it. I can work on it. You know, everything is there for us to use. It's a great, you know, it's great. But the process is the same after you have the assets. You still have to... Art it up. <laughs> yeah, basically everything. Publishing is still publishing. It's you're still going through the same steps, but in a different way. Do you have any different uh, different things you have to do about ebooks covers now, or is it the not really? Well, well e- the ebook covers. I mean, the ones that Bain use, they use the covers that we use. Now, if someone like say audio. Or, you know, if they're doing a cover for a Bane, um, a lot of times I'll send them something without text on it because their, their format's different. It's like square. So, you know, they, they, they put the cover on their books. But I don't, the e-books are set up the same way. The covers are set up the same way as you would any 
you know, PDF. Yeah, they're essentially the same. Do you think about the fact that they're going to, that a lot of times you'll, people will see them as postage stamp size things when they're looking at them on on one of the ebook retail sites or, or on Amazon or whatever? Not really. I Well, personally, I like a book in my hand, but, you know, I, I there's just something about a book, and, you know, but as far as that goes, no, because everybody's so used to seeing these things small. I yeah. mean, every kids, I mean, they probably don't think twice about looking on the website for something and looking at this and seeing it small. I mean, they see their, they watch their TV small. They watch that's, their TV. <laughs> they small. watch their TV. I mean, what kid, they don't even, they don't watch it on like a big screen. You know, you have all these big screens. All these kids are, are looking at their phones for the TV. I have my niece coming over. She stays over. She's like a teenager. And I'll come in and say, why aren't you watching TV? Oh, I am. And she's looking at her phone. I know. It's very strange. It's very strange. Uh, my my kids are like, I might as well just not have cable um, because they don't watch television. <laughs> Just as long as the internet connection's good, they're they're good to go. They they so, they, so. they stream everything. They look at everything, you know, on on the internet. I just I don't know. I have a problem. I want to sit in front of a TV like I want to sit in front of a book. But these kids, that's the way they are. No, it's true. But like my husband teaches college, and he said they all come in with their phones. He said they don't take their 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 eyes out of the phones. But if they go off, he says he takes them away. Yeah, when I used to, t- when I taught, I forbid devices. I was just like, man, I can't, uh, especially laptops. I used to just enrage my students by telling them they couldn't use laptops in my class. <laughs> anyway, let's not let's not get off on that tangent. Um, what is um, so? Give us a, a summing up, uh, maybe a little bit. What's um, how do you feel about? Um, you know, having produced some of these great covers through the years, do you put them up in, do you have some in your office, um, some of your favorites, or or do you just forget it and move on to the next? Actually, I don't. I did have, you know, when I, I had an office in the city, we had some of our, you know, covers up. And I should. I, I had them, you know, like up in, but no, I don't have anything up. But they did look nice when I had them up. <laughs> um, I, I uh, you know, I just, I just enjoy doing it. I, I, you know, they say if you love what you're doing, you're not really working. I really do like, it, love it. So, but as far as books, I mean, yeah, I, I think it would be fun to like get something. And I do have, I still have proofs from way back like set up proofs from like way back and do like some collages and, or just, you know, like hang like covers that throughout the time, you know, that I've been doing them. I still have them. Yeah. yeah. I still have them in proof form. Well, cause I, one I day. I would love to see that. One yeah, day. one day. I mean, some of the older ones, well, I mean, you'd probably, yeah, I mean, I have them going way back. So we got some amazing uh we got some amazing uh, we we have the like slides of the old covers at least in our files here. 
in some of the old ones, yeah. We have all kind of cool stuff in the files. But, uh, and still are, apparently. Just And still are, yeah. <laughs> only only in a different way. It still are. Yeah. Well, Carol, um, you, the one thing that... Um, that we all think about you is that you are the steady, amazing presence that is that is always um, working, always um, in a great mood. Um, I don't know how you do it, <laughs> but yeah, always on top of everything. You can always count on Carol Russo. You don't have to. You don't have to worry. That sounds really nice. I like that. That's nice to hear. I really do. I appreciate that. Well, I guess it's because you really like what you do. Well, that's that. That's it. I really do like what I do. I, I don't really have any negative, you know, like I get up and I like getting on the computer and working. Otherwise, you know, I think that's probably it. If you really love it, you're going to enjoy doing what you're doing. I'm, I'm just happy that I found something that I liked and I could, you know, survive on it. Well, we're happy you did, too. Well, thanks so much, Carol. Carol Russo of Carol Russo Designs, the legendary Bain book, uh, book designer. Well, thank you. Nice talking to you. Bye. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the star kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Whatever it was, I didn't do it. The dark-haired captain, one of the two dark-haired captains, approaching the small conversational group said. Her grace was just explaining that it's not her fault grace and females are getting out of hand, Brigham said dryly, holding out her hand. Oh, no. Captain Elizabeth Davis, Lukacs' operations officer, said. How could anyone possibly think that? Not enough we have to produce them in homegrown variety, but we go around importing them. Mayhew observed, still to no one in particular, and Davis laughed. Her own accent marked her as a native of the Star Kingdom's capital planet, but like quite a few of the officers who'd been loaned to the modern Grayson Space Navy in its infancy, she decided she liked Grayson. In fact, she'd become a Grayson citizen almost ten T years ago. Lord Mayhew rolled his eyes at her laugh, but he also held out his hand. And we've been damned lucky to get them, all of them he said in a quieter tone, homegrown or imported. I have to agree, Honor said. But you know, the really remarkable thing to me, even after all these years, is how well Grayson's grappled with all the changes. Part of that's the example we've been given. 
Lukachova said. And Reverend Hanks's input at the very beginning was huge. Her eyes darkened, and so did Honors as she recalled how the gentle Reverend had given his life for hers. And Reverend Sullivan's been just as strong in his own way. But the bottom line is that unlike those lunatics on Masada, we haven't forgotten the book is never closed. They not only refused to stop listening to God, they started lecturing him on the way things were supposed to be. She shook her head. We've had our own iterations of the faithful to deal with, but by and large, they did us a huge favor. All we had to do was look at them to see exactly what God didn't want us doing. She shrugged. With that example, how could we not get it right? Mostly, anyway. I think you're probably right, the officer who'd accompanied Davis said. He was a good 20 centimeters taller, stocky, and very squarely built, with a ship's prow of a nose and a ponytail that reminded Honor of Paul Tankersley's. Unlike Davis, he spoke with a pronounced Grayson accent. It's good to see you, James, Honor said. And you, milady, Captain James Cena, Bat Div 1's chief of staff said. Actually, though, I'm even happier to see Commodore Brigham. I was wondering if- Stop right there, Rear Admiral Lukacs said, raising an index finger. But sir, after that exercise yesterday, we've got to figure out- You're on dangerous ground, James, Lukacs said solemnly. Sir? Captain Cena regarded his superior with a suspicious eye, and Honor's lips twitched. James Cena was one of the GSN's outstanding administrators. Although he was an excellent combat officer, one of the best, he was far more valuable in his current position. He didn't like it, because he would far rather have been on a battle cruiser's command deck somewhere, but he wasn't the sort who complained. He was a no-nonsense, focused, very much to the point individual, however, and there were times when he found his admiral's puckish sense of humor more than a little trying. Lord Mayhew just informed us immediately before your arrival that we are not to talk shop tonight, Lukacs said firmly, blue eyes twinkling. And as obedient subjects, it behooves us to obey him. It's a good thing it's my brother who's the despot and owns all the headsmen, and not me, Mayhew observed. Oh, I'm sure, Honor said. In fact, everyone in the GSN knew Michael Mayhew had been Navy mad since childhood. Only the fact that it had taken his older brother so long to produce the male heir the Grayson Constitution required had kept him out of uniform before Grayson had joined the Manticoran Alliance. And only the fact that Benjamin had needed him so desperately as his personal envoy had prevented him from seeking a naval career afterward. That was the real reason officers like Lukacs and Sina were prepared to be so informal with him. He was one of their own, and he'd always had a very special, very personal relationship with the GSN and its personnel. They knew how deeply he loved the Navy, and they loved him right back. Ah, Mayhew said now, as an extraordinarily tall officer approached them, Captain White! My lord? Zachary White bowed to Mayhew and then to Honor. My lady? He shook his head. I'm sorry I wasn't here to greet you, Lady Harrington. My son. Admiral Lukacs told us about it, Zach, Honor said, shaking her head as she held out her hand to the much shorter woman who'd accompanied White across the crowded compartment. She was one of the relatively few civilians present, and on her, the traditional Grayson gown looked good. Although her particular version of it wasn't quite as traditional as many. Honor doubted she was wearing more than three petticoats. Is he all right, Misty? She asked, and Madam White smiled. 
I think he's pretty much indestructible, she said. He was just so upset over messing up dad's party. He really was, Captain White agreed and looked at Lukacs. I really appreciate your taking over the host duties, sir. His mom could tell him I wasn't mad at him, but he was upset enough with himself that I think he needed the paternal reassurance. Lenka and I may not have any of our own, Captain, but I've got five siblings, Lukacs said dryly. And thanks to Sky Domes and our little population explosion, the last time I looked, I've got somewhere around, the number is subject to change without warning, you understand, 37 nieces and nephews, at least four of whom have started producing children of their own. White chuckled and nodded greetings to the other officers clustered around Mayhew. How's he doing overall, here in Manticore, I mean, Honor asked Misty, and she shrugged. He misses his friends and his classmates, my lady, she said. But it's not like he's not making new ones, and he's actually ahead of his age mates academically. Her smile might have held a slight edge. I don't think those new classmates of his expected that. And the experience of actually living somewhere besides Grayson is going to be really, really good for him. She shrugged. Besides, the truth is that everyone here in Manticore is bending over backward to make all of us Graysons welcome. It shows, believe me. Honor nodded. As a Stedholder, and aside from Mayhew, the only Stedholder in the Manticore binary system, she'd felt a personal responsibility to represent the Grayson dependents who'd accompany the GSN. Unfortunately, she couldn't. There simply weren't enough hours in the day and so she was enormously relieved by how well things seemed to be going. And one reason they were going so well was the smiling woman standing beside her towering husband. In many ways, Misty White was Lenka Lukachova's civilian counterpart. While Lukachova dealt with the chaplain corps' issues, Madam White was attached to the Grayson Family Support Command. Technically, that was a military organization, headed by Captain Leonard Fitzhugh, and she was only a civilian advisor. Fortunately, Fitzhugh was smart enough to stay out of the way when Misty White rolled up her sleeves and went to work. I'm glad it's going well, Honor said now. I'd heard reports that it was, but I'm behind the curve on a lot of things. I can't imagine how that could possibly be the case, my lady, Misty said. I'm sure you can't, Honor said warmly, slipping her left arm through Misty's right. But unless my eyes deceive me, it looks like Michelle's flag lieutenant is headed this way to tell us that now that the two of you have rejoined us, it's time for dinner. And as you may have heard, I'm from Sphinx. She smiled at the others, which is to say, I'm hungry, again. My lady, Lukachova said frankly, I would kill for your metabolism, I really would. Oh? Honor gave Misty a conspiratorial smile. Well, if you think three o'clock feedings are bad for most children, you should think about trying to keep somebody with the Myrdal mods fed. My mom's made a few pithy comments on that task over the years. They include references to somebody named Sisyphus. Oh my, Misty laughed. I hadn't even thought of that, my lady. Trust me, Raul's going to be repaying my karmic debt to my parents for the next, oh, 17 or 18 T years. There are some aspects of parenting I look forward to less than others. Maybe, my lady, Misty said, smiling as a petty officer came forging through the press of senior officers, towing a small, spotlessly clad boy child towards them. 
But trust me, when the dust settles, it will have been worth every minute of it. Every single minute. Oh, I believe you, Honor said softly as she and Misty moved to greet young Master Edward White. I believe you. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a sprightly jig of T-squares, triangles, and HB pencils upon a magic golden drafting table, plus thanks, praise, and plaudits for legendary book designer Carol Russo. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 